Amen. You may be seated. I, uh, I agree with that, that cheering, that clapping. Amen. You, you can be seated, Daniel. You can sit down. <laughs> um, you can keep praising, too. I, <laughs> I, um, I just was reflecting. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. I was reflecting on the fact that Jesus does indeed command my destiny. I was uh, blessed to be born into a home with a grandmother who read to me the Bible every night uh, for like a bedtime story. And the reason she did that was because she wanted, she, she was coming to the end of her life and she knew her time was short. And she wanted me to be with her in heaven. I didn't get to choose my grandmother. And I'm so glad my grandmother didn't get to choose me as a grandson. Uh, but the Lord put us together. And that uh, he does indeed command our destiny. And so we want to welcome those of you who are here this morning. The gospel is rich, and the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins is so incredibly precious. You might be here thinking, you know, you're not into football, so you might as well go to church or something like that, right? <laughs> and uh, maybe that's true. But you need to understand you're here because Christ put you here this morning. And uh, he, he puts you here because he wants you to hear the gospel. So I'm going to do my best to, uh, to present that faithfully as it was presented to me as a child. And, and if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, we're praying for you that the Holy Spirit would open your heart to really get it, what's, what's in this text this morning. And so uh, we're going to just, I just want to draw your attention to one verse in particular. We'll just read verse 15, chapter 7 of Romans, verse 17. Garrett, can I ask you for a really weird favor? Can you just mute my microphone really quick so I can blow my nose and not? Up with me. Good. Thank you. All right. Verse 15. And, and let's give a hand for our sound people who have to juggle all this kind of stuff. <laughs> verse 15. Well, he starts in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He's talking about slavery. You are owned by sin. And then he says in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. I do the very thing that I hate. And then he concludes the passage. He says, wretched man, this is verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is obvious. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much just for me personally. saving me from my sins, coordinating my destiny in such a way that I would meet you. 
you didn't have to do that, but you did it because you love me, and I thank you so much for that. While I was still a sinner and still hostile and at war with you, you died for me. Such incredible grace, such incredible mercy. Now, Lord, I just pray that you can help me pull it together so I can get through the sermon this morning. And I pray, God, that your word would just shine forth and that your spirit would illuminate the text and that you'd help anyone who's here this morning to understand their need for you, their desperate daily need, their, the, the urgent cry of their soul is to depend upon you every single day, that you would show us all, Lord, those who have been walking with you for a long time and those who may not know you yet, that you would remind us all, show us all, that every single day is a day that we walk hand in hand with you and that apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, drive that truth home into our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what's gotten into me this morning. Can you mute me? In Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll comes to realize that he is, quote, an incongruous compound of good and evil. His bad nature is holding his good nature back, or so he believes, and so he has this desire to do good things. He aspires to good things, but the painful reality that he comes up against over and over again is that no matter how much he desires to do good things, he can't do it. He, there's this, this other side of him that is always holding him back. And so his solution is to turn to science, and he comes up with a potion that he believes can separate out his two natures. His hope is that his good self, which comes out during the day, will be free from the influence of the evil of his bad self. And of course, his bad self is going to have the ability, the opportunity to come out at night. And his prayer is that he'll accomplish good things during the day and hopefully he'll lock himself away or he won't get too carried away at night when his bad self comes out. However, when he takes the potion one night and his bad side does eventually come out, he is horrified to learn that he is far, far, far more evil than he expected. He describes his evil using typical Christian categories. Quote, he says, quote, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil. And if you're hearing that and you're hearing echoes of Romans chapter 7, you're not wrong. That's exactly what Louis Stevenson is attempting to channel in this character that he's writing about. He goes on, he says, the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine, hides every act, hide is the evil side of him, hides every act and thought centered on himself. Edward Hyde is so named not just because he's hideous, but because he's hidden. That's why Louis Stevenson chooses that name. He thinks solely, Edward Hyde thinks solely of his own desires. He doesn't care in the slightest 
whom he hurts in order to gratify himself. He will kill someone if that individual gets in his way. And Stevenson is saying that even the best of people have an ulterior, sinister side of themselves that they prefer to keep hidden. And he's going on to say that even the best people will struggle with an enormous capacity for egotism, self-absorption, and a regard for their own selfish interests, even over and above all others. Once Jekyll realizes that he has this capacity for evil acts, he decides that he's going to clamp down heavily on this terrible self-centeredness and pride that are at the core of his being. And so, in a sense, as the story unfolds, you could say that, that Jekyll gets religion. He finds God, in a, in a sense. And he solemnly resolves in his own strength, with his teeth gritted, his, his fists clenched, with this clenched fist, you know, grinding teeth, sort of white-knuckled resolve, he determines that he's not going to take the potion anymore, and despite that, he will still be really, really good. He's going to be a good guy in his own power, in his own strength. However, one day, Dr. Jekyll is sitting in a park, on a bench in Regent's Park, and he's thinking about all the good things that he's been doing as a, as a good, upstanding Christian and is resolved in his own strength and in his own power. And he's been reassuring himself that despite the fact that he has an awareness of this evil inner nature, that he has suppressed that evil inner nature, and he's just been perfect and good and doing all sorts of good things for everybody around him. And why? My goodness, he is, after all, a saint. He starts to think and talk to himself in this way. And this is a direct quote. Quote, I resolved in my future conduct that now that I had become so saintly, I would now strive to redeem my past. He's talking about what he had done as Hyde. And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful and of good. You know how earnestly in the last months of that last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much good was done for others. But as I smiled and I compared myself with other men and compared my act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at that very moment of that vain glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. And I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde. It was the first time he had turned into Hyde in the broad light of day without having taken the potion. And that is really what the Apostle Paul is driving at here in the tail end of chapter 7. We have, as he's already touched on in Romans chapter 5, an Adamic nature. Also, we refer to it sometimes as a sin nature. And as we discussed last week, there is this ability, this, this desire that we all have to try to control it, to manipulate it, but we can't. And even when we think we are controlling it, even when we think we have successfully caged that tiger, we immediately begin to reassure ourselves, and lo and behold, take a good look in the mirror and the good you has turned sinister, so to speak, which is to say that there is nothing good that dwells in you. That is what Paul is really driving at here. There is in each of us 
an evil Adamic nature. And we need to identify it and see it for what it really is. He poses this question, if you're with me in Romans chapter 7, in verse 13, he poses this question. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? He goes on to answer the rhetorical question. He says, by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good. Now, the reason I start there with verse 13 is that verse 13 is a bit of a a transitional verse. It brings to a conclusion what he's been saying as he brings uh, verses 7 to 13 to a conclusion, but it also serves as an introduction to what he's going to say in the tail end of the chapter, verses 13 to 25. This rhetorical question is, did that which is good bring death? Did the law kill me? Was it the law that brought me to my bitter end? And he says, no, it was sin living with inside of me. He identifies the culprit. And so he asks this rhetorical question in order to segue into a description of that sin nature. He's already talked about the fact that way back in chapter 5, Adam has given to each of us this sinful nature, and now he's going to begin to describe it in some detail. He says, for example, in in the verses that follow, verses 14 and following, that he is a sinner, and he, he talks about what that looks like. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. Remember, he's, he's interacting with the law and whether the law is good or bad. He says, we know that it is spiritual, but he makes the statement, I am of the flesh sold under sin. And so that's the explanation. It wasn't the law that killed him. It was his sin nature. And now in verses 15 and following, he's going to identify exactly what the sin nature is. And he starts off with an expression of confusion. Is this me that's doing this, or is this someone else that is doing this? Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Well, he seems to have a lot less figured out than Dr. Jekyll did. He is looking in the mirror, and he is seeing that it's not this alter ego that comes out at night, and he's the good apostle Paul during the day, and evil Saul is coming out at night and trying to stalk down Christians. He understands his actions are a part of him. There's not two sides of him. There's just him, but yet he is capable of looking at himself and saying, there are not two sides of me, but there's this part here that's exhibiting itself that I don't like, and I don't understand why it is the way that it is, why it's doing what it's doing. So he says, I don't understand my actions. And then he clarifies in verse 15, I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. So he begins with a statement of confusion, but it's not a confusion in terms of distancing himself from his actions. He's owning his actions, but not sure why it is that he's doing them in the first place. At least that's what he's trying to communicate to you and me. And then in verse 16, he transitions now to hypocrisy. He says, now, if I, don't, if I do what I do not want, he says, then I agree with the law that it is good. It's like if you were to ask me whether or not lying is good or bad, I can tell you it's bad. But then if you are to ask me, if you know lying is bad and you know you ought not to lie because it is bad, then, well, do you lie? <laughs> He is confused at himself, and as he begins to further identify the sin nature within him, he understands that he lives a two-faced life. He is a hypocrite. And now he's going to, in verses 17 to 20, just enumerate all that is going on with the sin nature. He identifies it in verse 17. He says, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells 
within me. What kind of power is this sin? We see in verse 18 that it is an enslaving power. In verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's not free to fully do all the good that he wants to do because he is prohibited by his sin nature. He can't seem to escape it. It is there. It is haunting him. He is enslaved to it. It is an enslaving power, number one. Number two, it is a corrupting power. Verse 19, he says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Though he has the desire to do what is good, he can't do what he desires. And though he may not desire to do bad, he cannot stop himself from doing the bad that he doesn't desire to do, which is to say that there is a corruption at the heart of who he is. There is a break between what he knows is good, what he knows he ought to do, versus what he inevitably continues on doing. So, number one, it is an enslaving power. Number two, it is a corrupting power. Really, what we need to understand is that there is this monster that lurks beneath the surface. In verse 20, he says, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin who dwells within me. So he calls it out for what it is. Now, Christians have long struggled then with the application of this passage. If we were to take this passage as though this is just a Christian's typical experience, their normal nine to five, you wake up and this is your life, well then, there are all kinds of problems that begin to spring out of that kind of an application. All of us can see the truth of what is going on here, But is Paul meaning to say then that there is no power we have over our actions? That as Christians, we're just going to live this sort of of hybrid existence with the good us and with the bad us, and ultimately that there's nothing we can do to stop the bad version of us, and therefore we need to just make our peace with the evil that we're going to do from time to time? There are some who argue that way who suggests that what Paul is saying here is that there's no way for us to gain mastery over our sinful actions. Of course, theologians have looked at that interpretation and said, surely that's not what Paul is trying to say. Surely he is intending to say that uh, this is his life as he was before he knew Christ. This is his life as a Jew under the law when he was confronted by the law and he knew what God wanted him to do and yet he just didn't have any power within him, his own ability to do it. Surely that's what Paul is talking about. And they have many good arguments to support that. A couple of arguments that I'll just share with you right now. Number one, Paul uses the first person, personal pronoun. He talks about, I do this. I desire this. I do not want to do this, and I keep doing it. He uses the first person, personal pronoun. He seems to be talking about himself. Oh, oh, well, surely what he means to say is he's talking about himself in the past tense, what his life was like before he became a Christian, right? That makes sense. But again, there's just this little problem with the grammar of the text, He doesn't say throughout this section of verses 13 to 25, this is what I used to do, this is how I used to desire, this is what I used to live like. It's all present tense verbs. He is saying, 
I live this way. I do these things. I desire this. I don't desire that. I do what I don't desire, and I don't do what I do desire. So if he's using the first person pronoun, and if he's using the present tense verb, then it would seem to imply that what he's suggesting is this is his life at the current moment. Oh, but what kinds of interesting applications have sprung up from that interpretation? It's interesting, about 200 years ago, there was an individual named Sigmund Freud. You may have heard of him, the father of all modern psychology. And Sigmund Freud espoused a certain theory of human personality in which he said every single one of us is composed of, there's, there's two of us, so to speak. There's an ego and there's an id. And then he added a third a little later on called the superego. And essentially, there's this drive that you have to do what is good, and there's this drive you have to do what is evil. And, and then he further elaborated upon this theory in which he said we're all trapped as a result of desires that we developed when we were children, living with our parents. And it went kind of weird and twisted at that point. I'm not going to elaborate and go into great detail. But what's fascinating is that Sigmund Freud was not a Christian. He did not subscribe to the Scriptures, but he ministered to a number of individuals who lived in a Christian culture. Now, granted, it was quickly moving post-Christian, but his clientele consisted of individuals who were raised in an environment, in a home, in a culture that said, this is what God says is right, and this is what God says is wrong, and they were struggling with having these desires of doing what was wrong. And what Sigmund Freud's real goal was to do was to try to understand these individuals' competing and conflicting desires, and in the process of trying to come up with a, totally, uh, a theory that was totally devoid of scriptural truth, he inevitably ended up justifying them in their pursuits and suggested that what they needed to do, if they had a particular desire that they didn't agree with or didn't like, was that they needed to try to manipulate those desires and try to contain it and try to control it. In other words, Jekyll and Hyde comes out in the counselor's couch. And many people have come back and they've looked at this and said, okay, so what Paul is saying is that we're powerless and so we just need to try harder. Well, to the other side of the argument are individuals who say, no, 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 what Paul is describing here is the experience that he lived as a Jew before he knew Christ, but as a Jew, he lived under the law, he had the law, the law was placing certain demands upon him, and of course, he couldn't meet those demands, and so he describes himself as being wretched. There are already some strikes against this. We've noted the fact that he talks about himself in the first person and that he uses present tense verbs consistently all the way through. However, there are still a few interesting statements that would seem to suggest that, yes, he is speaking of his life as a Jew under the law, presumably before he met Jesus Christ. I'll draw your attention to a few of them. In verse 14, he says, "'We know that the law is spiritual.'" God speaks forth the law, tells us what is right, what is good, what we ought to do. We know that it is from God. We know that the law is spiritual. But, he says, I am of the flesh, notice this expression, sold under sin. Sold under sin. Would a Christian who had placed their faith in Christ describe themselves as being sold under sin, sold to sin. It seems to directly contradict 
what he has said previously all the way back in chapter 6. Look with me back at chapter 6, verse 18. You'll recall in chapter 6, he talks about being united with Christ. And now that he's in Christ, he is free from sin, free from the law of sin. In fact, that's almost word for word what he says in verse 18 of chapter 6. Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness. Interesting expression there. What he says in chapter 7, verse 14, if he's describing himself as a believer, as one who knows Christ, would seem to be directly contradicting what he said just a chapter before, and he's definitely talking as a believer there. But that's not the only one. Look down at the end of the passage. Go to verse 22. He makes this statement. In verse 22, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Now, I want you to jump to chapter 8, talking about the Christian life being lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, he says, the law of the Spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, this is very confusing then. Based on those two statements, what he says in chapter 7 and verse 14, and how it ties back to what he has said in chapter 6, and what he says in chapter 7 and verse 22 and 23, and how it looks forward to what he's about to say in chapter 8, we would think that he must be describing his life before he knew Jesus Christ. Believers don't talk about themselves being sold to sin. So you're all sitting here this morning, you're thinking, okay, pastor, that's what it is then. Surely that must be it. But wait a minute. He uses the first person pronoun and he uses all present tense verbs. What are we to do with this? You're all saying, I'm waiting for you to tell me what we're about to do with this. I have uh, struggled with this particular passage, and I'm not the only one. I think uh, anybody who's ever worked their way through the book of Romans has come to chapter 7, verses 13 to 25, and struggled with how to understand it. If we say that this passage is referring to Jews under the law, then we can safely conclude that what Paul is describing is an experience of which he was set free the moment he received Christ. Now, there are some problems with that grammatically, as I've already pointed out to you. But even as Christians, do we not still struggle with the body of sin? Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. Let me find it in my notes here. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. He's talking about the church in Galatia, which is wanting to go back to the law, and he's exhorting them not to do that. But he's talking about life being lived under the Holy Spirit. And he says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, just stop right there. He has just mentioned that we still have desires in our flesh, but that we're not to gratify them, and that the way we don't gratify them is if we walk by the Spirit. 
He goes on to say, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other in order to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That also mirrors what he has just said in chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I do not do, and the things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And he has said that very same sort of statement here in Galatians chapter 5. But he makes this conclusion. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And I think that's very, very crucial. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. When we come back to Romans chapter 7, and what he says in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. He's talking about his experience under the law. I think that what Paul is really driving at here is the experience that anyone who's come up against the truth of God's morality wrestles with. As C.S. Lewis once said, nobody knows how bad they are until they have truly tried to be good. Paul is describing everyone's experience of the Adamic nature, the sin nature. And what makes Romans chapter 7 so fascinating and I think so difficult for interpreters to pick it apart is that he isn't describing the Christian's experience of the, uh, the typical way that we're to live the Christian life. He's talking about the experience of the Adamic nature, but he's talking about the experience of the Adamic nature from a Christian perspective. Let me say that again. He's not talking about the typical Christian experience. He's talking about the typical experience of the Adamic nature, but he's talking about that experience from a Christian perspective. We all are still trapped in this body of death. We do not find within our body a willing ally to do the good that now we want to do as a result of being born again by the Holy Spirit. We desire to do good. We've been born again by faith in Christ, His Holy Spirit regenerating us and renewing us. We now want to honor Him. We now want to serve Him, but we are still trapped in a body that is dying. We still live in this flesh, and this flesh still has a spiritual component to it that is at war against our souls. And so, even though, and for me, I cannot escape some of these expressions. For when he says in verse 14, I am sold under the law, I am sold to the law of sin and death, I just, I look at that statement and I contrast that with what he said in verse 6. And I don't think that what Paul is trying to drive at here is to say that this is your existence as a believer, but he is trying to say that this is the struggle we all will face sooner or later. You say, what is the point of chapter 7? And I conclude, the point of chapter 7 is this, we come to terms with the struggle that we all face and it's intended to get us from chapter 7 to chapter 8 as quick as possible. Do you know what we face in chapter 8? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about in Galatians chapter 5. He says you still have these desires, but if you walk with the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify those desires. And so we look at chapter 7, we're like, is this a Christian? Is this a Jew before he meets Christ? Like, what are we talking about here? 
I'm not entirely sure that we can ever fully nail that down and put a pin in it and say we've got it completely figured out. I do think that what Paul is describing is the experience that we all have had And we've had it sometimes before we trusted in Christ. We've certainly had it since we've known Christ. Whether we know exactly what he's talking about in Romans chapter 7, we certainly know what he's talking about in Galatians chapter 5. And the point of it all is that in our own strength, we cannot be good. Even having trusted in Christ, we still will struggle with the sin nature. But there's an amazing gift we've been given which Paul will talk about and elaborate on in chapter 8. And that gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every attempt in our own strength, every desire we have to do good, in our own strength, we cannot satisfy that desire. We must have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we must have the Holy Spirit empowering us. Too often... What we do as Christians, we strive hard and then we fail. And our response to that is, I will strive harder. I will do better. There is nothing wrong with having that desire, but stop and think of why you failed in the first place. To continue to do the same thing over and over and over again is the typical definition of insanity. And you can't be blamed for feeling insane at times because when we read about this guy wanting to do things and not doing them and not wanting to do other things and inevitably doing them, he sounds like a crazy person. So you know what? If you've ever felt crazy for trying to follow Christ and the power of your own self and failing horribly at it, you're not wrong. You will never succeed in your own strength. You will never be victorious just gripping your knuckles, clenching your jaw, and trying harder. How then, pastor, do we succeed? Look at what Paul says here. A taste of what is to come. He says in chapter 8, Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are, not debtor, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, notice this, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's what we need. We need victory through what the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit can give us. You know, what we really see here when we look at this description of sin in Romans chapter 7, the Greeks had a term for it, two-headed hydra or a multi-headed snake, as the case may be. According to Greek mythology, there was this creature where uh, it it was a multi-headed snake, and if you chopped off one of the heads, you tried to kill it, you chop off one of the heads, two more heads would grow back in its place. And as we look at what Paul is describing here in chapter 7, that's what we find. In our own strength, we will not succeed. The law tells us what is good, but the law itself is powerless to save us. And when the law presents us with what is good, we find then in ourselves this desire to be good, and we cannot. So we double down. 
We try harder. We strive against it. We say to ourselves, we're going to be better people. We inevitably start to act just like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, Louis Stevenson was really profound in his writing of that story, the curious case of Jekyll and Hyde. When Jekyll realizes that he's become Hyde, it's the beginning of the end. And what he ultimately resolves to do is to kill himself. All sin leads to despair. All sin, eventually, if you gain any degree of mastery over it, it only feeds your own sense of pride and your own self-reliance. And in that moment, what you inevitably end up doing is in your pride and your self-reliance, you just start sinning all over again. Where you think you've defeated one sin, where you think you've chopped off the head of one serpent, you begin to congratulate yourself and you begin to think that you're having some success. You find that two more heads have actually grown back in its place. And as you begin to struggle with that, you realize at the end of the day, you cannot save yourself, which should lead us to a place of despair. But suicide is not the solution. Paul poses the question, wretched man that I am, who will save me? He doesn't say, forget it, this is pointless, the end, I'm going to kill myself. He turns to Jesus Christ. And do you know who can save Paul? The Lord. And do you know who saves you? The Lord. You are, and I am, and we all are sinners. Don't believe me? Just follow Paul's advice. Go home today, and for the duration of this week, try to be perfect. Just try to be good. Come back, and let's talk about what Christ can do for you. You're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, I don't need to spend a week. I already know. Good. I'm so grateful that God has brought you to that place to realize that you are a wretched man. I've got good news for you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt for your sins, a debt which you could never pay. And even in some weird hypothetical world, if you could have paid that debt, you yourself still could never repent on your own. Jesus Christ sent you God sent Jesus Christ for you to atone for your sins. And through Christ, Jesus also sends you what you really need, which is him living inside of you. And that's the good news of the gospel. He hasn't just died for your sins to atone for them and to pay the penalty for them as he did 2,000 years ago on the cross. His desire is to save you from your sins every single day. And if we walk with him, we can be free. You and I face a two-headed hydra. And if you've ever wrestled with that monster living inside of yourself, you know for every head you've chopped off, two more just grow back in its place. But I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ can kill any serpent and slay any dragon. And he can save you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word and its goodness to us. Lord, we pray that you will 
bring this truth home to any who are here today who do not know just how grievous their sins are and who may have experienced something of this contradictory and contrary nature within themselves and yet they are too content to live within the cognitive dissonance of knowing that they are inherently bad and thinking that it'll be okay because after all, everyone does it. I pray, Lord, that you would show them that they must have the gift of the Spirit, that they must have a relationship with you, that they must come to the cross and confess themselves for what they really are and so meet you as you truly are. Lord, if there are any here today who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to see that they must have you. Bring salvation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.